Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids. What's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Look at that. That is amazing. It's like 3D. I'm at the Houghton Rare Books Library at Harvard University with Professor Henry Louis Gates, Jr. You may recognize him as the host of the PBS show Finding Your Roots. We're looking at a print, an original lithograph from the 19th century. Pictured in it are seven men. The depth of field is so striking. I've never seen the original. The men are all distinguished looking, dressed in three-piece suits, some in bow ties. They're elegant. Oh, they're dapper. It's not surprising. The print says they're congressmen from the 1870s. But there's something else about the scene that seems out of time and place. All of these congressmen are African-American. When you see the copies, it looks essentially like newspaper print. Right. But when you look at it here... Like, look at the hair texture. You can see the hair texture. The caption reads, the first colored senator and representatives in the 41st and 42nd Congress. It was created by the famed printing company Courier and Ives, and it really is a powerful image. You should stop what you're doing right now and Google it. These men, Hiram Rhodes Revels, Joseph Rainey, Benjamin Turner, Josiah Walls, Jefferson Long, Robert DeLarge, Robert Brown Elliott, don't just have great names. They've got absolutely fierce facial hair. But to me, it's that year that really sticks out. Entered according to Act of Congress in the year 1872. So some of these men, seven years before, are slaves. That's right, absolutely. There were only two of these men who were born free. Now I have to confess something. If you'd asked me when the first African-Americans to serve in Congress were, I would have said the 1950s or 1960s, maybe the 1970s, but not the 1870s. The men in this image, all Republicans, all representing southern states, served in Congress during the period right after the Civil War known as Reconstruction. That's when the formerly rebel states were reabsorbed into the Union, and four million newly freed slaves were made citizens. So it was a time of unparalleled hope. Black men could vote, and they were about to elect congressmen to represent them throughout the South. Look at Hiram Revels there. Now he looks like a senator. Senator Revels from Mississippi was the very first African-American to serve in Congress. In the print, he's seated majestically all the way to the left. When Frederick Douglass saw the portrait of Hiram Revels, he said, at last, the black man is represented something other than a monkey. Are they hopeful here? Oh, yeah, they're hopeful. They're exemplars of the race, you know, the best and the brightest. And I'm sure that they believe that they're the vanguard of legions to come. They have no idea what's about to hit them. From CBS Sunday Morning and Simon & Schuster, I'm Moraka, 
and this is Mobituaries. This Mobit, the pioneering black congressman of Reconstruction. January 29, 1901, death of representation. Now, if you blinked during high school history class, you might have missed Reconstruction. There's a movie about it, though. It was a really big movie. And that movie, whether you've seen it or not, has a lot to do with what you don't know about this story. The Birth of a Nation was that film, and it was a sensation when it premiered in 1915. A sweeping epic, it told the story of the Civil War and its aftermath from a distinctly Southern point of view. The Confederacy may have gone down in defeat, but it did so nobly. The Ku Klux Klan, who rise up afterward, are valiant defenders of Southern virtue. And in a notorious scene midway through the film, the 1871 South Carolina State House is depicted. The lawmakers are mostly black. And they're a disgrace, drinking whiskey, eating chicken, bare feet on their desks. The message, 50 years after the end of the Civil War, was clear. Reconstruction was a failure, and the election of black officeholders, a desecration. But the lives of the actual black congressmen of Reconstruction tell a story that's very different from the birth of a nation, and no less epic. In this episode, I'm going to tell you about three of those men. We start with a great escape. When you're here, do you imagine what it was like back in 1862? All the time, every time. That's Michael Bulwer Moore, and we're on a boat in South Carolina's Charleston Harbor. Oh my God, look at that dolphin. We're not far from Fort Sumter, where the Civil War's first shots were fired. Michael's great-great-grandfather was an enslaved man from Beaufort, South Carolina, named Robert Smalls. Robert was still owned by his master in Beaufort, but at the age of 12, had been sent to Charleston to work and to send his wages back. And very quickly, Robert was drawn to the the docks where for different jobs and ended up on this boat, the, the planter, which once the Civil War broke out, was taken by the Confederacy and configured into a, a military vessel. And so he effectively was the pilot of the ship. He knew all of the waterways and was an expert seaman. Maybe because of his expertise, Maybe it was because he was believed to be the son of his owner. Smalls was treated more leniently than other slaves. He had negotiated with his master and with his wife's master for them to be able to live independently in an apartment. But he knew that his family, his wife and children, could be sold away in an instant. And the prospect of that, as it would for anybody, was just a very difficult thing to deal with. And so he had freedom on his mind. The crew members of the planter used to joke with Smalls, who was mixed race, about his resemblance to the ship's white captain. And those jokes inspired an audacious plan. 
In the early morning hours of May 13, 1862, Robert Smalls set that plan into motion. So he saw that the Confederate crew had left, and he knew that oftentimes they left for the evening not to come back until the next day. Were they off drinking? Yeah, what are they doing? I think carousing, just having a good time in the big city. And, uh, you know, certainly there was a lot about this endeavor that was a calculated risk. I mean, he and Hannah, my great-great-grandmother... His wife. His wife had basically said this was a do-or-die proposition, that they knew that if they got caught, that they would be not just killed, but probably tortured in a particularly egregious and public manner as an example example for others. So they lined the bottom of the boat with dynamite. And they knew that, you know, if they got caught or if something went wrong, and there were a myriad of things that could have gone wrong, but that they were going to blow themselves up. And how many children did they have? Two at the time. And did the kids come with them? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah, including my great-grandmother, Elizabeth, who at the time was maybe four years old. Smalls disguised himself in a straw hat and long overcoat, similar to what the ship's captain wore. With more than a dozen black passengers on board, most of them hiding below, he set sail towards the Union blockade and freedom. But the harbor was heavily fortified with Confederate sentries watching closely. And he knew all the passcodes because he was the pilot of the boat. And so every time he passed by, there were about five or six forts along the way here that he would have to blow the appropriate passcode on the whistle. One by one, Smalls, playing it cool, gave the right passcodes. And so, so yeah, so they let him pass. And the last big obstacle is which fort? It's Fort Sumter, which is the largest and most dangerous fort in the harbor and, you know, the place where the Civil War began and just a, a place of enormous historical sort of gravity and, and weight. It was captured at that point by the Confederacy and there were enormous guns on Fort Sumter. When Smalls got to the point where he believed he was safely beyond the range of cannons, he fired up the engine and it was full steam ahead. But while Smalls and his crew had otherwise meticulously planned this escape, they'd overlooked one key detail. Their ship, speeding straight toward the Union blockade, was still flying a giant Confederate flag. Luckily, his wife Hannah, my great-great-grandmother, sewed together some white bedsheets, and so they quickly lowered the Confederate flag, raised the flag of surrender, the white sheets, and they were greeted at the the Union blockade, the USS Onward. The Union forces had suddenly gained a heavily armed ship, ideal for navigating Charleston's harbor. Even more valuable than the ship, though, was the pilot's expert knowledge of the harbor. And the fledgling Northern war effort suddenly gained an honest-to-goodness war hero. I mean, there are all kinds of articles about how what Robert did was just sort of mind-boggling. Of course, Robert was persona non grata in the South. There was a bounty on his head. But uh, in the North, he was received as as a hero. You read these contemporaneous accounts. This is not a modern-day sort of inflation of what happened. At the time, it was a really big deal. Yeah. It's interesting to remember that at that point in time, people thought of of enslaved people as African-Americans really as beasts of burden. It really blew people's minds because 
It just was beyond what people thought an enslaved person could do. Robert Smalls received $1,500 as a reward for delivering the planter, enough for him to hire private tutors and send his children to the best schools that would accept African-Americans at that time. And just three months after stepping aboard the USS Onward, Robert Smalls met with President Abraham Lincoln himself. Lincoln had been cautious about employing runaway slaves in the Union military, but Smalls helped make the case to the great bearded one that black men should be allowed to serve in the Union ranks. Lincoln eventually relented, clearing the way for some 200,000 African Americans to serve, including Robert Smalls, who went on to fight in 17 naval battles, rising to the rank of captain. Why didn't he just take his winnings and settle into a comfortable life up north? I think he could have. It, it would, he, he earned his freedom. He earned the future of just relaxing and, and living the life of a Civil War hero. But it wasn't enough for him. And he, he came back and he fought for others to gain them the same freedom that he had already won for himself. After the war, Smalls returned to Beaufort, South Carolina, and in a sign of how radically things had shifted in such a short time, he purchased the home of his former master. In 1868, as a delegate to South Carolina's Constitutional Convention, he helped to ratify an amendment that banned discrimination, quote, on account of race or color in any case. He then won a seat in the South Carolina State Legislature, that same state house depicted in such a demeaning way in The Birth of a Nation. But in the real-world version of events, Smalls fought for compulsory public schooling for all children, black and white. And in 1874, Robert Smalls was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Once black people get the right to vote in the South, they start electing people to office, which is one of the most remarkable changes in this whole period. That's Columbia University history professor Eric Foner. His landmark 1988 book on Reconstruction inspired a modern-day reevaluation of the period. His latest book is about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Those are the ones ratified in the years after the Civil War that banned slavery, extended citizenship to all people born in the U.S., and effectively gave the vote to African-American men. Alas, most women of any race would have to wait another half-century to vote. Well, when I look back at Reconstruction, I think of it as a pivotal moment in the history of American democracy. It's the first time in this country, or really anywhere, that an interracial democracy was created. That's a really big deal, by the way, to say that. The first time in history. Yes, Yes, you don't have any examples of this in other countries, really. Of course, slavery is abolished in many parts of the Western Hemisphere in the 19th century, but a functioning interracial democracy is not really created in any of those places. And here you have it. You have people who a few years before were slaves now holding political office. My estimate is that about 2,000 African-American men held some kind of public office. Uh, I'm talking about from Congress down to members of the legislature, down to sheriff and school board official and justice of the peace. 
I think Robert Smalls was the type of individual who rolled up his sleeves and stuck his neck out to make things happen. Robert Smalls' tenure in Congress coincided with the rise of a black political elite in the nation's capital and an emerging social one, too. Next, the story of the black senator from Mississippi and his socialite wife. Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids, what's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. <laughs> I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There was a time where, like, all I did was think, eat, and sleep Josephine Bruce. Allison Hobbs is a director of African-American studies at Stanford University. A few years back, she wrote about the June 24, 1878 wedding of Mississippi Senator Blanche K. Bruce to the former Josephine Wilson. This would have been the wedding of the century. We can imagine this very well-appointed, gorgeous home where this very fancy wedding is taking place. Crowds gathered outside that home, hoping for a glimpse. But the house belonged not to the senator, but to the bride's father, a wealthy African-American dentist in Cleveland. The beautiful Josephine was a socialite in a burgeoning black upper class. So it was the senator who was marrying up. Blanche Bruce is going to look out on the family and friends that have gathered and not see one person from his own family and perhaps not even see one familiar face. And this is a sitting U.S. senator. Right, right. Perhaps Josephine's family did not want any kind of reminders of the slave past at this wedding that most of Blanche Bruce's family members had been enslaved. While Josephine's family were born free, Bruce had been enslaved for more than half of his life. And so that automatically places him in a very different kind of category than Josephine Bruce and her circle and her parents' circle. Blanche Bruce was living in Missouri at the start of the Civil War. He fled to the free state of Kansas and after the war studied at Oberlin College in Ohio before making his way to Mississippi. There, he bought a plantation, got involved in local politics, and in 1875 was sworn in as the state's junior U.S. senator, occupying the very same seat once held by Jefferson Davis, the former president of the Confederacy. This was not a man who was not ready for prime time. This is not someone who was in over their head. This was someone who, despite all of the odds against him, succeeded enormously. Lawrence Otis Graham is the author of a history of the Bruce family called The Senator and the Socialite. You write that he had the manners of a Chesterfield. What does that mean? He was sort of an upper-class gentleman who, you know, carried the walking stick and was finely groomed 
and almost British in his carriage and behavior. He knew that even though he had this slave heritage and people were always going to know that, he needed to present himself as a sophisticated Washington political leader. Sophistication came more naturally to Josephine. She grew up ensconced in a world of privilege, unattainable for all but the wealthiest Americans at the time, black or white. After the couple's wedding, they set sail on a four-month European honeymoon with stops in Germany, Holland, and Switzerland. The newlyweds attended the theater in London and shopped in Paris. If half is true that is told of her beauty and accomplishments, the Washington Post gushed just before their wedding, her entry here as a senator's wife is likely to create a sensation. Wow, fourth floor. (laughs) This is phenomenal. Graham and I visited the five-story red-brick Washington, D.C. townhouse the Bruces called home. But some of these windows are almost floor-to-ceiling. You must have been so happy to find out that the house is still here. Oh, absolutely. Just a mile from the White House, this was an integrated neighborhood in the 1870s. To be able to walk down the steps and feel like I would understand the life of this wealthy, black, powerful couple at a time when you didn't even think blacks existed in a lifestyle like this. That house became an important stop on the Washington social circuit. If Bravo had been around back then, would Blanche and Josephine have been on it? They would have come after them for a TV show, right? Oh, my gosh. They would be a great reality show. Can you imagine this? Living in a home like this and, and, you know, socializing in. Because they're moving from the black world. There's their black world. And then there's their white world. And she's terrific looking. Oh, she's terrific. And she she knows how to pull it off. She knew how to enter a room. She knew how to make people want to know her. But she was not doing it for herself. She was doing it for her husband, and she was doing it for his career. So she would invite and host the wives of senators, um, the wives of Supreme Court justices, and these women would come. They would come. They would come, and because of their presence, the society columns would cover them. But news accounts also made constant, unsettling reference to Josephine's light complexion. It requires much more than usual attention to notice that she has any African blood in her veins, read one dispatch on the front page of the New York Times. Her looks, along with her wealth and bearing, made Josephine particularly vexing to many in the Washington political establishment. And in some ways, that was exactly what was so disturbing to many of the members of the Senate and their wives was that she just acted like a white woman to them. And in many cases, she's more refined. She's more well-educated than any of the white senators' wives. One paper went so far as to run an article titled, Ought We to Visit Her?, describing the dilemma many white senators' wives faced. I mean, you could imagine that these white women who are in Washington, who are married to senators, they perceive themselves as being at the very top of the social ladder. And then a black woman comes and all of a sudden she is the topic that everyone can't stop talking about and 
she's the one that the newspapers want to write about. There was no rule book for how to receive the wife of an African-American senator. Right, exactly. And so all of these white women are sort of making it up as they go along. And some seem to do it with some grace, and others don't. Now, it probably won't surprise you that some politicians and their wives did snub the Bruces. But what's interesting to me is the disapproval those politicians were met with. For example, there's this 1879 editorial from a Wisconsin newspaper that scolds the politicians who have, quote, studiously ignored Josephine Bruce's existence. The editorial concludes, they have allowed themselves to be controlled by that old race prejudice. To me, it's so striking that this editorial is not making any excuses for the white senators and their wives who have not received the Bruce's. Right, which is so interesting. It seems surprising that anyone would be surprised that there were white wives who did not visit the Bruce's. I mean, it it seems like that would have been what people would have expected at the time. And so that's where I think we do have to kind of think, well, Maybe there were people who really did believe that a social revolution had happened and that people needed to accept that and move on and move ahead. As Senator, Blanche K. Bruce advocated not only for the rights of Black people, but also Native Americans and Chinese immigrant laborers. He was the first African-American to preside over the Senate, He even chaired a Republican National Convention. For many Americans, the Bruce's wealth and status must have embodied the heights to which African Americans could aspire in a reconstructed America. But the uneasiness some felt about them being part of the Washington establishment would be a sign of things to come. Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids, what's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Back in 1861, on the eve of the Civil War, Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the newly formed Confederate States of America, delivered a speech laying out the reasoning behind the nascent rebellion. The great truth, he proclaimed, was that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. But by 1874, a lot had changed. Over 600,000 Americans had died in the war that followed that speech. Four million slaves were freed, and many of them now held public office throughout the South. 
and the U.S. Congress was fiercely debating a Republican-backed civil rights bill that would outlaw discrimination based on race in hotels, theaters, and railway cars. The Democratic opposition to the law was being led by none other than former Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens. He was now back in Congress from Georgia. Again, Professor Eric Foner. And he'd given a speech denouncing the civil rights law and really defending slavery and saying the Civil War had nothing to do with slavery. It was all local rights. Remember, when the South seceded, Stevens gave a speech saying slavery is the cornerstone of the Confederacy. Fast forward 15 years, and he's saying, oh, no, no, it wasn't about slavery. And anyway, black people don't deserve these rights anyway. We don't want to be in a hotel with a black person or a railroad with a black person or anything like that. And the Republican floor leader, when Stevens was finished, said, you know, it's kind of late now. We're going to adjourn until tomorrow morning when Robert B. Elliott will give the Republican response. South Carolina Congressman Robert Brown Elliott was famous for his sterling oratory, his effortless display of classical learning, and his eloquence in debate. He was also black. But among his African-American colleagues, most of whom were mixed race, Elliot stood out for his darker skin, a living, breathing rebuttal to racist ideology of the time. If you were an intelligent black person and you were mixed like Frederick Douglass, of course, racists would say, yes, of course, your brawn comes from your African heritage. Your brain comes from your European heritage. So I think he must have caused quite a stir. Elliot was also more radical in his politics than his black colleagues were. He had opposed granting amnesty to former Confederates. So when word got out that he would give the response to Stevens, African-Americans filled the House galleries. They came to see what one paper dubbed as, quote, the African take on the, quote, brain of the Confederacy. Elliot began his response to Stevens by insisting that the rights guaranteed by this bill were quite simply inalienable. Here are Elliot's words read by actor Delroy Lindo. While I am sincerely grateful for this high mark of courtesy that has been accorded to me by this house, it is a matter of regret to me that it is necessary at this day that I should rise in the presence of an American Congress to advocate a bill which simply asserts equal rights and equal public privileges for all classes of American citizens. I regret, sir, that the dark hue of my skin may lend a color to the imputation that I am controlled by motives personal to myself in my advocacy of this great measure of national justice. Elliot then faced down the aged, stooped, and bilious Stevens and his colleagues, calling them out for their Confederate past. It is scarcely 12 years since that gentleman shocked the civilized world by announcing the birth of a government which rested on human slavery as its cornerstone. The progress of events has swept away that pseudo-government, which rested on greed, pride, and tyranny. And the race whom he then ruthlessly spurned and trampled on are here to meet him in debate. Sir, the gentleman from Georgia 
has learned much since 1861, but he is still a laggard. Now, he's addressing the vice president of the Confederacy, you know, who wasn't used to black people talking about him that way. And I wonder what the protocol was. Did people cheer? I mean, I mean, it's... well, they weren't supposed to cheer, but they did. Eliot concluded the speech by citing biblical precedent and making the case that this bill would serve as the capstone to Reconstruction itself. The results of the war, as seen in Reconstruction, have settled forever the political status of my race. The passage of this bill will determine the civil status not only of the Negro, but of any other class of citizens who may feel themselves discriminated against. It will form the capstone of that temple of liberty, begun on this continent under discouraging circumstances, but carried on in spite of the sneers of monarchists and the cavils of pretended friends of freedom, until at last it stands in all its beautiful symmetry and proportions, a building the grandest of which the world has ever seen. And the speech was widely reported in the press. It was widely hailed. One Kentucky newspaper said this was the most impressive speech by a black man in American history. Now, that's saying something when you had Frederick Douglass out there giving brilliant speeches, but it made an impact. Eliot became a nationally known figure because of his speech on the Civil Rights Bill. With the votes of African-American congressmen Joseph Rainey, Richard Kane, James T. Rapier, and John Roy Lynch, that civil rights bill passed. And on March 1st, 1875, President Ulysses S. Grant signed it into law. Discrimination in restaurants, theaters, and streetcars was now illegal in the United States. At least it was on paper. Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids, what's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. <laughs> I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The slave went free, stood a brief moment in the sun. That's how the great writer and civil rights activist W.E.B. Du Bois described Reconstruction in 1935. Sadly, that moment in the sun wouldn't last. All throughout Reconstruction, white supremacist groups terrorized black voters and office holders in the South with violence and intimidation, slowly eroding their power. And then in 1876, a dispute over who won the presidential election, think Bush v. Gore, but without the hanging chads, led to a deal. Republicans could have the White House as long as they agreed to the demands of the Southern Democrats, also known as the former Confederates, to withdraw federal troops from the South. Those federal troops were essential to protecting the rights of the newly emancipated black population, rights that included voting. Just a few years later, the Civil Rights Bill of 1875, which had never really been enforced, 
was struck down by the Supreme Court. Reconstruction doesn't end immediately. It loses impetus, it loses uh, power. But like in the 1880s, black people are still voting in many parts of the South. There are still black congressmen in the 1880s, still some black office holders, less political power than they had had during Reconstruction. But it's not until really the turn of the century that a whole new system of racial equality is put into place, what we call Jim Crow as a shorthand. By the year 1900, there was just one African-American in Congress, George White. He chose not to run for re-election that year, after his home state of North Carolina passed laws restricting black voting. In his farewell address of January 29, 1901, White addressed the U.S. House in words that managed to capture both the deep disappointment of Reconstruction and the fierce determination for a better future that it had inspired. I asked Henry Louis Gates to read White's speech. This, Mr. Chairman, is perhaps the Negro's temporary farewell to the American Congress. But let me say, Phoenix-like, he will rise up someday and come again. These parting words are in behalf of an outraged, heartbroken, bruised, and bleeding, but God-fearing people. After that speech, it took 27 years before another African-American would be elected to the U.S. House. Over on the Senate side, Blanche K. Bruce left office in 1881. He and Josephine remained for much of their lives in Washington, D.C., where she founded the National Association of Colored Women. Bruce's Senate seat went to a former Confederate general. Eighty-five years went by before another African-American was elected to the U.S. Senate. Not long after his famous speech on the floor of the House, Robert Brown Elliott resigned his House seat and returned to South Carolina. He started a law practice, but it attracted few clients, and Elliott died in poverty in 1884. As for naval hero-turned-congressman Robert Smalls, he served five terms in the House. After losing his last election, he returned to Beaufort, South Carolina, and died in 1915. That same year, The Birth of a Nation was released. You remember The Birth of a Nation. That was the movie I told you about at the start of this episode, with that disgraceful scene depicting black lawmakers drinking, eating chicken, their bare feet up on desks in the South Carolina State House. Now remember, by that time, 1915, blacks had lost the right to vote throughout the South. And Birth of a Nation is telling you that is justifiable. Why? Because look what happened when black people held office. It was a travesty of government. This is complete fabrication. It's what you would call today fake history. But it had a powerful impact on public sentiment in the early 20th century. Now, The Birth of a Nation wasn't just some indie flick playing down at the one art house in town. Director D.W. Griffith's epic was one of the highest-grossing films of the silent era. Its star, Lillian Gish, 
was known as the first lady of American cinema. And despite protests from the NAACP, and there were protests, President Woodrow Wilson hosted a screening of the movie at the White House. That image, that scene, was that then and the predominant view of how blacks had held office and how they had comported themselves during Reconstruction. By the time Birth of a Nation came out, you already had scholars, my predecessors at Columbia University among them, who had in a more academic way written that black suffrage was a terrible mistake, that black people are incapable of holding political office or taking part in democracy. So those ideas were out there, but a film like Birth of a Nation conveys those ideas to far more people than an academic treatise is ever going to do. The North may have won the war, but the South won the movie houses and the textbooks. Henry Louis Gates remembers how he was taught about Reconstruction in his West Virginia high school history class. Was it really embarrassing? Oh, I mean, it was, you can't imagine how embarrassing it was. We would, the few black people in the class, we would hold our books in front of our face and sort of slide down because Abraham Lincoln, the greatest American since George Washington, had given his life for you people. And when you people were freed, you squandered the opportunity in this embarrassing period called Reconstruction. That's personal. I grew up in Long Island, near New York City, a suburb. That's what I was taught in high school in the 1950s. Reconstruction was the worst uh, period in American history. It was a travesty of democracy. Black people misused the right to vote, were not capable of uh, serving in public office. You know, that, that was what was taught everywhere. And it still has a hold on an older generation of people who learned this in school. So, you know, it's a very pernicious set of myths, but uh, it shows you that history matters. What people think about history matters. But what if the story of Reconstruction had been told differently? What if instead of the birth of a nation, people thought of that beautiful 1872 Courier and Ives lithograph, the one of the black congressman of Reconstruction? When Henry Louis Gates and I were admiring it, I asked him if maybe it was time that Hollywood reconsider Reconstruction. I hate to reduce everything to casting, but I do think that John Amos could play Hiram Revels. <laughs> I love John Amos. So you have Billy D. Williams. Oh, uh, Billy, yeah, Billy D. Williams is Josiah Walls. <laughs> That's good. Um, Mahershala Ali. Mahershala, Mahershala Ali. Ali. As, as Robert would be Brown Robert Brown Elliott. <laughs> One last thing. When I started this story, I thought of the black congressmen of Reconstruction as forgotten forerunners. And they were forgotten by Hollywood, by high school history books, by most of us. But it turns out they weren't forgotten by everyone. During the Great Depression in the late 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Works Progress Administration sent out-of-work writers into the South to document the lives of now elderly former slaves. And one of the coolest things is that when WPA workers would go into sharecroppers' homes in the South and they find faded copies of this lithograph Gee. still on the wall, people keeping alive the memory of the apex of black achievement immediately following 
the Civil War. So when I was growing up, it was a picture of, there was Jesus and John Kennedy and Martin Luther King. But at that time, there was this lithograph. Next time on Mobituaries, we take the show on the road. Chef Paul Prudhomme is not all together now. Oh my God, I just got a whole audience to say Dom DeLuise in unison. I certainly hope you enjoyed this Mobit. May I ask you to please rate and review the podcast? You can also follow Mobituaries on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at MoRocca. For more great content, go to Mobituaries.com. You can subscribe to Mobituaries wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Mobituaries was produced by Kate McAuliffe and Mark Hudspeth. It was edited by Mike Levine. Our team of producers also includes Megan Marcus, Harry Wood, and me, Moraka. It was engineered by Dan DeZula. Special thanks to Harvard University's Houghton Library, Charleston Harbor Tours, everyone in Beaufort, South Carolina, home of the Reconstruction-era National Historic Park, and my friend, the great Delroy Lindo, who you can see on The Good Fight, streaming on CBS All Access. To learn more about Reconstruction, be sure to check out Henry Louis Gates' latest book, Dark Sky Rising, and Philip Dre's gripping Capital Man. Indispensable support from Genius Dineski, Richard Rohrer, and everyone at CBS News Radio. Our theme music is written by Daniel Hart. And as always, undying thanks to Rand Morrison and John Carp, without whom mobituaries couldn't live. Hi, it's Mo. If you're enjoying Mobituaries, the podcast, may I invite you to check out Mobituaries, the book. It's chock full of stories not in the podcast. Celebrities who put their butts on the line, sports teams that threw in the towel for good, forgotten fashions, defunct diagnoses, presidential candidacies that cratered, whole countries that went kaput, and dragons. Yes, dragons. You see, people used to believe that dragons were real until... Just get the book. You can order Mobituaries, the book, from any online bookseller or stop by your local bookstore. And look for me when I come to your city. Tour information and lots more at mobituaries.com. Hello, I'm Brian Cox. I'm Robin Ince, and this is the Infinite Monkey Cage trailer for our brand new series. We've got mummies, we've got magic, we've got asteroids. Mummies, magic and asteroids. What's the link? That it was an asteroid that magically went over the world that led to Imhotep the mummy coming back to life. That's correct. I thought it would be. We're as scientific as ever. But the most important thing to know is that we are going to deal with the biggest scientific question. We finally ask, what is better, cats or dogs? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.